Alright, so this is uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 17. And this is Paul kind of talking about how a, how a person becomes a Christian from a different angle than he told us last time. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they would be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, and since they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination or the point of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things or the persons who follows the law will live by it. Uh, and he says something confusing here. We'll explain in a minute. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is already near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. So, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between ethnicities, Jew or Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he richly blesses everyone, all who call to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call, they being anyone, how then can they call on the one that they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news. But not all the Israelites accepted this good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that uh, this word that we just read from Romans doesn't, doesn't just describe what your word is like. It actually describes what's going on tonight. How will we believe? How will we call upon you? How will we know you, trust you, and grow in you uh, if we do not hear your word, if you don't open our eyes and our ears? And so we've asked you several times, and you've loved to hear these prayers. And so we ask you again, have mercy on us. Let us hear from you tonight. Uh, if people leave here only hearing from me, that is a sad night. Uh, they will not be changed, nor will I. But if we hear your voice, we will leave different. That is what we long for and hope for. And you give us reason to expect that from you. And so we ask this in your grace. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So Anna and I, uh, I told you before, we lived in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Not born and raised, but spent uh, a few years there. And we lived on 48th Street, and in the neighborhood that we lived in in West Philadelphia, uh, as you can imagine, there was a lot of crime in our neighborhood and around us. And so we would get these weekly emails from one of our neighbors up the block, and she would basically, like, 
It was like a Reader's Digest version of all the crimes that happened in that neighborhood, all the arrests that had been made, and the juicy stuff. She would put links on the bottom of the email to any pictures or YouTube videos of surveillance footage that the cops were trying to get out to the neighborhood to say, like, look, these are the people that robbed that place. If you see them, uh, get in touch with us. And so there'd always be videos on these emails, too. And Something I learned from those uh, weekly crime emails and, and, and surveillance footage is this. Whether it was a mugging or someone holding up a store or um, a carjacking or something, uh, there was never one camera that got, a, got the whole picture. And so for one mugging or one uh, robbery, there would be several videos on there. You could also think about it this way. Think about uh, our cameras. Everybody's got one on their phone now. Your camera, if, you if I took a picture of y'all right now, without a panoramic lens, I would be able to get maybe this group right here. Maybe, maybe uh, 20 or 30% of the group, because the frame of the camera is so small. I would need a panoramic lens to capture the whole thing at one time. Here's, what I'm, here's why I'm telling you this, and here's what I'm thinking, that uh, two weeks ago, if you remember, what we were talking about in Romans 9 is, is Paul was giving us, in a sense, the surveillance footage from heaven's perspective, or God's point of view, his vantage point, his angle on how people become Christians. You remember what we talked about? Uh, it's not just in Romans, it's in Ephesians, it's in uh, all of the Old Testament, it's in John, it's in all the Gospels, it's in Revelation. And, and from God's vantage point, his surveillance footage of how a person who's alienated and separated from God, how they become alive again, is this. He chooses and ordains who will come alive, who he will kind of touch with life and bring back to life. The Bible says those words. Paul said it in Romans 9, uh, that God has, before the foundations of the world, as he says in Ephesians, God has foreordained or, or predestined those, uh, the, his people in love. And so uh, that's kind of what Paul is saying in Romans 9. But then you just heard what I just read in Romans 10, and you've got to be like, whiplash, What? You were just saying, Paul, that this is how somebody becomes a Christian. God chooses them. Like, the only way that you can choose him is if he, is if he has chosen you first. The only way you can even be interested in God is, is if he has already made you alive and given you eyes to see him. So what's Paul saying now in Romans chapter 10? Because it sounds like he just totally contradicted himself. What I think is happening is he gave you some surveillance footage, heaven's surveillance footage, if you're a Christian, how you wound up resurrected, alive, fully alive. Now I think he's giving you, in a sense, you could call it surveillance footage that we see, that we're used to. Earth's surveillance footage, I guess if you want to call it, or our camera angle. And Because here what you see is things like, well, the way a person becomes a Christian is they hear the gospel. They think about it. They toss it around in their mind. They talk about it with other people. They believe at some point. They decide at some point, this is true. This is real. This is, this is alive. I want this. And they pray. Right? So the first, the first footage sounds like it's all God's action. And it is, right? He's doing all the work. But then this sounds like all our action, right? We hear, we believe, we pray, we trust, we look to Jesus, right? So the question is, what do you do with this? Um, the point is, 
both, uh, just like I was talking about, in order to solve a crime in, in, in West Philly, you had to look at all the footage to get the true picture. Uh, you, panoramic lens is what you have to use if you want to see the whole landscape, not just this tiny little 10% of the, of the landscape with your camera. And Paul is giving us kind of both vantage points to give us the whole story. And so, real quick, if you're a person who says, when you think about why you're a Christian, if all you think about is your decisions, the camp you went to, the decision or the commitment that you made, the emotions you felt on that night, the prayer you prayed, you're like the person whose camera lens can only capture 10 degrees out of 360. You're missing so much of the story. And it will absolutely reduce your joy and your security and your confidence in the gospel. God will be tiny to you. Because it's really all about your decisions. And so you need a panoramic lens. You need to look at the other footage to get the true story. But also, let's say you're what, what's called reformed, and maybe uh, you've heard the word Calvinistic, and you believe, you know, God does everything. He is sovereign, which he is, but he ordains everything, which he does. But then you take it to that and you say, well, then what's the point of reading my Bible? God's already ordained that I'm going to be alive and grow, so what's the point of that? What's the point of praying? God already knows what he's decided to do and what he's going to do, so why pray? Why talk about the gospel with my friends? Why ever invite anybody to my small group or to RUF or to church? God's already kind of decided who he's going to choose, right? And if that's you, you also, maybe you have a little bit bigger than 10 degrees, but you're missing so much of the story, so much of reality you're blind to, and you need to hear the footage from Romans 10. And so God is 100% sovereign. His hands are on the reins of history and of your history. He has ordained everything that comes to pass. And at the same time, you and I are 100% responsible for how we respond to him, to the gospel, to the scripture. Confused? You're supposed to be. You're a creature. Uh, God has revealed to us a little bit about this, but not everything to make all the, all the mystery go away. And so that's just something to kind of have straight, have straight in your mind because we're going to be talking about our action. I didn't want you to think that that's all the story. Before you're ever at work, God was at work first. Before you ever thought about him, he thought about you. Before you ever chose him, he chose you. Before you ever loved him, John says in 1 John, he loved you first. So really quick, there's three unusually brief points that I wanted to make about this passage. There are two dangerous responses to the gospel of Jesus. And there's one promising response. Two dangers that are common to all of us. And there's one promising uh, response to the gospel. Here's the two dangerous ways. And if I'm using words you don't understand, I'm going to explain them in a second. Number one, there's a danger in confusing means with ends. E-N-D-S. Number two, there's a danger in taking shortcuts to the end, the end goal, which would be, in this case, salvation. Number three, there's promise for you and security in using God's means to get to God's end for his goal. Okay? This will make sense in a minute, hopefully. All right, real quick, the first point. There's danger in confusing means and ends. Um, God is a God who establishes, or her, he sets up, he decides every end in history. He declares it. He's not a God who's sitting on his throne like we watch TV. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen with ISIS in the Middle East? What's going to happen with cultural decline if that's happening here? 
He's not wondering. He already knows the end. He's the, he is in control. He gets last say. He's not in competition with anyone. He is God. All right, so he declares every end, but except in the case of miracles, he accomplishes or makes those ends happen through means. For instance, God ordained that I would marry Anna. Much to Anna's chagrin, God didn't just snap his fingers and that happened. Uh, it happened through how many years of awkward friendship, how many years of trying to figure out what we were and where we were going and, and discerning all that kind of stuff. But the, the end was declared from before the beginning of time that Ben and Anna would be joined as one by the grace and mercy of Jesus. But the means that God used to accomplish that end was dating and, and suffering, right? And confusion sometimes and talking to a ton of people to get wise discernment and realizing in God's patience and kindness, this is a good thing. We want this. One other thing that God has ordained, if you're a Christian, he has ordained that you will grow. It's your destiny. But it's not automatic. Make sense? God hasn't stuck you on autopilot. Like if you just sit back and coast, you won't grow. Because God has ordained that the means to grow you is marinating in his story. In the scripture, in the, in the Bible, until you begin to taste like it and smell like it and think like it. And you know him, right? Um, and so uh, if you avoid the means or confuse the means in the end, we get into trouble. Now, what does it look like to confuse the means in the end? If you're tracking with me so far, what does it mean that we get these things flip-flopped? Because we do. Uh, here's a couple of examples that cause us great pain and confusion in our lives. Dating is a means. Not an end. That's news to some of y'all. Dating is a tool uh, that we invented. The Bible says nothing about it. We, like Probably the past 150 years, we've been the first people in all of human history to date. Uh, and it's something that we kind of invented to help discern whether or not this is a wise and good thing to be married for the rest of my life to this person. Dating is a tool. It's a means. What happens when you turn it into an end, the end goal? Well, you hurt yourself and a ton of other people by becoming kind of a serial dater. You always have to have a boyfriend, always have to have a girlfriend. Or depressed when you don't have that. Uh, and you kind of have turned dating into a destination. It's what I always want to be doing. Um, and maybe, um, maybe, maybe you end up dating someone for like 10 years. You know, back east, back in the big cities, uh, Lester, you can testify to this. In Manhattan, I have a lot of friends in Manhattan the average time of dating a person before you might get engaged is probably like seven or eight years. Those are people who have turned a means into an end. They've turned a signpost into a destination. And it destroys people. Because the percentage of people who've been together that long dating to get married is extraordinarily tiny. Um, we call that commitment issues. Um, college is another thing. College is a means to a greater end goal. College is a tool to educate you, to equip you, to think on your feet, to be able to consume information, to make decisions in a job, to serve a boss one day, uh, or to serve the community one day. But if you make college the end goal, you become weird. And here's why. Because, and you think these people are weird too. I'm not talking about people who, for life circumstances, have to spend a little bit more time here. I had to spend more time in college. Some of you are working like 15 jobs and you've got to spend more time. 
I'm talking about people who have turned what's supposed to be an educational process into, this is the way I want my life to be forever. Have you seen the movie, uh, what's the movie with Will Ferrell? Um, old School, anybody seen that? There's a ton of movies like Animal House, Old School. These movies that we laugh at, but we, we're like, I would never want to be that guy who's like 40 and acting like a frat guy. Um, because we think that something's wrong with you. And those are people who have confused a means for an end. Make sense? Okay, so those might, uh, might not sound um, too terrible, but what about these that are a little bit closer to home? The Bible is a means, not an end. The Bible is what, uh, um, is what we read earlier, what Aaron read earlier. It is Jesus himself pleading with you. Be reconciled to me. It is God himself imploring you. Come home. Repent. What happens when people make what is supposed to be a tool or a means to bring you to Jesus into an end? Um, have you ever been, a, did you grow up in a church that is harsh, that is judgmental, that uses the Bible as a weapon to hurt other people, slander other people, exclude other people? The Bible as a means, maybe in a more innocent way, is you've turned the Bible into a book of memory verses. Not a bad thing to store up the scriptures in your mind, but have you turned the Bible into something was not meant to be, uh, which is kind of a, a book full of Hallmark quotes that we pull out on a bad day you need to remember. The Bible is a means. Uh, it is not the end. Another thing, community or fellowship, friendship, whatever you want to call it. Christians between Christians, it's a means. It's not an end. Uh, it is a means. When community is healthy and functioning like a means, uh, like a tool, we are pointing each other back to reality. Just like worship and sermons are a theological reorientation to reality, community is supposed to do that too. We get all insane in our day. We start believing lies about ourselves, about other people, about God, and we come back together, and other people are there to say, you don't look so good. What's up? And they talk to you, and they're patient with you, and they love you. Or they ask a question you haven't thought about, or they say something you've never heard before. Community is a means, just like the Bible, to point you back to your God. What happens when we turn community or relationship into the end goal, into the destination? That we become ingrown. We become all about ourselves. We become clicky. We become exclusive. We, be, we all look like each other, talk like each other, dress like each other, listen to the same music, have the same computers. We become weird, just like the 40-year-old frat guys. <laughs> when, when, we, when we make what is meant to be a means into an end. Uh, these are the kind of things that happen. Now, real quick, let's get to the passage, actually. What does Paul say? Uh, how are, the, how are the, his friends, who the passage calls Israelites or Jews, how are his friends making a confusing means with ends. Well, the main thing is that they were making the law an end or a destination. That law-keeping, behaving, kind of performing for God, obeying, uh, was uh, to be uh, a means. The law was a means. They made it into an end. The law became all about how well am I doing with God? When's the last time I did X, Y, or Z sin? If it's been more than three or four days where I can't remember it, I'm doing great. God loves me and I'm in good terms with him. But if I did it last night or this morning, I'm screwed and I need to have a waiting period. Um, that's what it means to turn what the law is meant to do as a means is to point you away from yourself 
and towards Jesus. But if you turn the law into the end destination, Christianity becomes all about rule following for you. It's hollow, it's empty, it's lifeless, it's boring, it's exhausting. Because it's supposed to be you coming alive and relating to not a person, the person, God. But what it's been reduced to is like, like following the speed limit, not jaywalking, not having sex, not lusting, whatever else. Stuff that uh, you and I uh, have a poor track record even following. The law was meant to confront you with the fact that all of your righteousness is monopoly money. A guy named James Boyce had this idea. All of your righteousness, all of your goodness is like monopoly money. You take it down to the bank and try to deposit that, you're going to get laughed at. You try to go to the store and buy something with it, they're going to laugh at you. Your money's not good there. Your righteousness accomplishes nothing with anybody. God's not interested. It's, it's worthless. It's, 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 uh, it's valueless. Uh, the law is kind of like that store clerk that laughs at you. Seriously? You're trying to buy stuff with that? You're trying to impress God with that? Uh, you need someone to give you some money if you're going to buy something. That's what the law, that's the purpose of the law, the commands in the Bible. Um, one of their main purposes is to point you away from yourself and back to Jesus, who has obeyed the law, who shares his righteousness from obeying it with you. That's what the law is doing. And even Paul says here that um, though the Israelites were zealous, they were sincere, they were super emotional about their religion. Um, he says that uh, they sought to establish their own law. He says in verse 4, Jesus is the culmination or the end goal of the law. He's the point of the law so that there might be righteousness given for everyone who believes. But they turned it into this thing like pulling down Jesus from heaven or going and getting him up from the tomb. What he's talking about is trying to do something God's already done. Trying to say, like, I need life. I need a Messiah. I need a Savior. So I'm going to go do this stuff to go try to grab Jesus out of heaven and bring him back down so he can help me. Or go down to the depths and bring him back up so he can help me. And Paul's like, already been done. God beat you to it. That's the purpose of the law. This is the danger when we mess it up. Really quickly before we push on towards the end. A guy named Richard Loveless said this. This hits home. Uh, if you... If you see yourself as a Christian, if you are a Christian, uh, consider this seriously. He says, we all automatically gravitate towards the assumption that we are justified or we're on good terms with God by our level of sanctification or our performance, how we're, how we're growing. We start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, but on our personal feelings or on our recent achievements since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to get a sense of peace. What he's saying is that every day, left to yourself, apart from God's word grabbing you and calling you back to the truth, you and I are thinking that our relationship with God is dependent on when's the last time I did this or that. And because we feel guilty for that stuff, because we usually can remember when the last time I did this or that is, we start working, 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 working to try to improve the relationship. I'm going to be more devoted. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to try harder to do that. I'm going to put up more boundaries here. Not things that are bad in themselves. But we try to start establishing our own righteousness. See, God? I made it a week. And again, it's monopoly money. He's not interested. You know what he's interested in? He's interested in Jesus. He's interested in hiding you in Jesus. 
He's interested in giving you the righteousness that you and I are trying to fabricate on our own. That's what he's interested in. And so we need to be careful uh, about our tendency to confuse means and ends. Um, the second point I wanted to talk about briefly is there's danger in taking shortcuts to the end. Now, here's the thing about shortcuts. Shortcuts are a-okay if they're in your hometown. Some of y'all grew up in Christmas. You know every road in this city. You can take shortcuts. Um, Dana or Sean, who got in town a couple of uh, last fall, or Dana, who lives in El Paso, probably not good that you take shortcuts if you're going to someone's house. Why? Because you don't know all the back roads yet. Um, and so, life, your life, uh, is unfamiliar terrain. Everything's new every day. You're always coming into new kind of circumstances, new confusing things, new things that are making you exhausted and confused. Um, you don't do life in your hometown, so to speak. And so if you and I take shortcuts with life or shortcuts to God, we get lost. And the problem with getting lost is this. Um, Sean Morgan and I were out in the woods a couple of weekends ago cutting some trees down. And the guy that we were meeting out there told us the wrong mile marker. We didn't know this. So we got off. Unfortunately for us, there was another road right on that mile marker that looked just like the one he described. So we pull onto it. I'm in my truck. And um, we keep going up this road dirt road, rocky road, and it gets steeper and steeper, and then steeper and steeper this way, bigger and bigger rocks in the road, narrower and narrower, less and less places to turn around, I'm starting to think, okay, are we going to get out of here? And we're all saying, is this the road we're supposed to be on? I don't remember this. This doesn't look familiar. Um, and we didn't have any cell service. And so I'm beginning to think, well, how many roads are in the middle of the Gila wilderness? There's probably not many. So if we keep driving on this, we'll probably find the road that we're supposed to be on. Thankfully, my better senses kicked in, or maybe one of y'all said something, I don't remember. Uh, but we turned around while we still could. But here's the point about shortcuts. They seem convenient. They seem like it'll give you a little bit easier time now, but they will get you lost without you even knowing you're lost. Uh, Stephen, after winter retreat a couple uh, two, uh, last weekend, he left at like 11.30 after he spoke, uh, gave us his talk. He tried to take the quick way back to the road, took a wrong turn, drove 30 minutes deep into the Lincoln National Forest at midnight on a Friday night, had no cell service or GPS. So he had to kind of follow the trees back to civilization in Cloudcroft. He didn't know he was lost for 30 minutes. He thought he was going home. Taking shortcuts in unfamiliar terrain like real life will leave you lost but the worst part about it, you won't know you're lost. So what does shortcuts to God look like? What is taking a shortcut to being right with God? Or taking a shortcut growing in God or growing in grace? Paul says it here. He says in the very beginning of this, he says, Hey, I can vouch for this. The Israelites, they're more zealous than any of you, more passionate, more fanatic, more committed and devoted to religion than, than any of us ever will be. He says it right here. Um, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge since they didn't know the righteousness of God and so they sought to establish their own or make their own monopoly money. They didn't submit to God's righteousness that he gave. So what he's saying here is they kind of finding a shortcut or an easier path to God than through owning their sin confessing their inability and crying out for mercy. They said, zeal, sincerity, 
Uh, and this is probably the most popular religious idea around the Western world today. And you believe it and I believe it. And it goes like this. Hey, dude, whatever you believe, if it works for you, that's awesome. The problem is it doesn't work for him or her or him or her or anybody else. Uh, if the Bible is true, it says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. There is no other road to the Father except Jesus. And so we, we pretend ourselves, we pretend to ourselves that there's all these ways and whatever keeps you emotionally happy, that's awesome. God has a problem with that because if you, he loves people better than you and I because if he gave that advice to people, humanity would be lost in the middle of the forest, not even knowing they're lost, going nowhere and not even knowing it. That's what it looks like to take shortcuts uh, to God. So sincerity doesn't do anything. It's not impressive to God. There's plenty of sincere religious people, spiritual people, devoted people, people who get up at 6 a.m. to pray to somebody or something every day. Uh, sincerity gets you nowhere. Zeal gets you nowhere. Um, zeal by itself gets you nowhere. Emotionalism gets you nowhere. We've already looked at how legalism or following the law, trying to print your own money to say, hey God, I measure up, gets you nowhere except lost without knowing you're lost. And so we've said there's dangers in these two confusion, these, uh, there's a danger in confusing the means in the end, there's a danger in taking shortcuts to God. But I told you earlier there's promise and there's security and there's confidence and there's hope in using God's means to get to God's end. Or to put it this way, to, to take God's road to get to God's destination, right? This destination that he's talking about is life in Jesus forever. It's you being made new in every square millimeter of your existence and living with God forever in the new world. That's what this gospel is. Paul says it down here. How do you have confidence? How do you know what to do? How do you know how to rightly use the means that God has given? He says in verse 9, Confess with your mouth, um, or if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if, you, if, it, if it's actually rooted in your heart, not just words that you lisp, but if it's a heart reality that flows out of your speech, what does he say? You will be saved. He says in verse 11, anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. In verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say, well, how? What means has God given for me to be saved? And he says that the entire tail end of the passage is all God telling you, here's how to find me. Or better yet, here's how I find you. Here's how I track you down. Verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is uh, the word of Christ, or the word about Christ. So here's maybe a fitting place to end. What does it mean? Is the application of this message I should read my Bible? Yes, it's that. But why? Here's what the Bible is. The Bible's like this room. Imagine this is a house. The Bible is a room full of windows. If it's kind of God's house with his family and his story inside, and he has surrounded it with glass windows for you to come up nearby and to look through and to see him, and to see what he's like, to see what he's done, to see what he says, to see his expression when he sees the people looking in, to see his welcome, to hear his welcome, to hear his invitation. That's what the Bible is. 
God wants you to see him, to know him. He is imploring with you, pleading with you, pleading with your friends. Be reconciled. That is why Paul says, how can people uh, call on the God who lives here? If they, if, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And he keeps kind of going back. And how can they believe in the one they haven't heard about? Kind of heard through the walls. How can they hear without someone telling them? How can anyone preach unless that person's sent? He's saying it's all means, 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 means. God has not left people with kind of nothing to do. God has called people to turn from your death, turn from sin, turn from helplessness to Jesus, who he's given to you freely. But he's given you, you say, well, how do I know what Jesus is like? How do I know how God's going to respond? He's told you. He's told you. He's been over backwards through thousands of years to persuade you and tell you what he's like and how he receives sinners who come to him pleading for mercy. Do you believe this? Perhaps for yourself, do you believe it enough to talk to your friends about Jesus? If Jesus has said himself, the tool that I'm using to bring people to myself is preaching the word of Christ. Do you and I believe this enough that we pick up our Bibles with each other, sometimes alone, to hear this, to believe it? That is the question that I think uh, Paul leaves us with here, um, is take great courage, uh, take great joy, um, because God has introduced himself to you. Uh, He has given us the tools and the means to get to the destination. Uh, Many of you have found Jesus with this means. I was converted by somebody's words. You are converted if you've been converted by somebody's words. Somebody in a coffee shop, a preacher, someone on TV, whoever. It was words. It was the story of Jesus uh, that brought you to life. That's how God works. Let's pray that uh, he would uh, preach to us and persuade us of this for ourselves and for our friends. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the Bible. In and of itself is incredible mercy and tenderness from you. We pray that you would encourage us that we haven't been left in the dark to kind of piece you together and wonder what you're like. You have come before us and shown us who you are and what you're like and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that you would give us eyes to see you as you've come before us. We ask this in his name. Amen.